Ponderings Universe, your host Ron Rapitalo here. And I'm excited to have my friend Steph Zhang here. And one of the things that I want to make sure that I'm doing in this podcast is continue to amplify Asian American leadership voices. And Steph is definitely a leader with a capital L. And I met her through my incredible friend and former Ronderings guest, Ali Myatt. And I learned about Steph was just how much storytelling and creativity were at the center of her life. And early on, it was not something she was told necessarily that fit with the way that she was supposed to do things. And yet storytelling, creativity continued to find her fast forward into the career she has today. So check out the episode and chat out to Leverage Publishing Group, leveragepublishinggroup.com. We ghostwrite, edit, and publish. First time off as a color. Peace. Ronderings Universe. I always say we're in for a treat, but we're really in for a treat because we are hanging out with my new friend and co-conspirator, Stephanie Zhang. Steph, welcome to the Ronderings podcast. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. And I love being a Ron's new friend and a co-conspirator. Yes. So Steph, admittedly, I've been following you on LinkedIn for some time and a number of amazing folks, including previous Ronderings podcast guest, Ali Myatt, were like, you and Steph would really hit it off because what I've seen from watching your LinkedIn and your presence online is that you are a master storyteller and a master at being able to get other folks to craft their story, particularly within the social impact sector. Do I have that headline generally right about the, your brilliance amongst many other brilliances I'm sure you have? <laughs> so yes, I think that it's a passion. It's an obsession. Ah. I have this new definition of a superpower and I, okay. I'm now acknowledging that it is a superpower as well too. And I just really believe there's nothing more fascinating than owning your story mm. and being able to share it and really realize that no one else has the story you have in the world. And so therefore your voice matters, your presence matters. Yeah. And the social sector is where I love to be, but I realize even there are so many people that are making a real difference, whether they're in a formal social entrepreneurial social justice sector. And so this idea of connect, when we connect to our stories, we automatically want to do good. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. And you can probably tell from having guests like you and Allie, my default has been my social impact, social entrepreneurial friends. Yes. And values alignment, people who are incredible coaches and folks who want to share their stories with the world, even if it's a story that I would argue all of our stories continue to be written. I always go back to one of my favorite musicals of all time. And no, it's not Les Mis, although Les Mis was up there for a long time. No, it's not The Lion King. The Lion King is up there. It is Hamilton. Me too. You go to the end. My favorite part about why I believe in the power of stories from a pop culture musical standpoint is that I don't want to have to wait until I die to tell my story. I'm not going to get emotional because maybe the wine will like help me. But who lives, who dies, who tells your story? I swear to God, every time I watch them, oh my God, why did I have to die? I'm like bawling. I think you just found my twin for the first time because I listened to the soundtrack on Amazon Prime. 
Yeah. And I tear up every time I hear that song. It is, it's so emotional because it's just the arc of the story and the way the song is written. And it's become a favorite thing that I've shared with people about like why we don't, we should be writing our story as we're living it. Yep. Because then there's a lot more agency, particularly for folks who look like us. For me, it's so important for us to shape that story while we're living it because there's something about the art of being able to create and live at the same time that for me is something I don't think my parents taught me to do explicitly. And yet I think there were moments throughout my life I saw my parents tell me different things about their story that I'm like, hmm, they're not telling me to create and write my story, but hearing about how they've reflected on why they came from the Philippines to America, what they were looking to build, what values they wanted to instill in me. I was like, wait a second, they're telling me their story, but they're not calling it that. They're just calling it, run on, this is what you have to do. I'm like, oh my God, of course. (laughs) I can't help but inflect my mom. And my mom wasn't always shouting, but admittedly, anytime there was advice, because I was being stubborn, it came through the form of like loving shouting. (laughs) Loving shouting. That's pretty juicy. I love that. Yeah. So on that note, Steph, we're going to turn it over to you. This is your turn to share. What is your story? We have to do some karaoke in here at some point. I can tell you. I'm going to tell you. You might be the first guest to do karaoke with. If you name a song or a ballad, I'm I'm down. I'm down. You said Les Mis and you said Hamilton. (laughs) All right. Uh So. Okay. So actually, like, let's figure this into my story. Okay. First of all, I want, I'm so glad that you laid the groundwork to say that our stories are always continually being made. So there's no single one because whenever I'm asked, what's your story? My nervous system actually freezes up, even though Mm. I am this story strategist and a story whisperer for other people. Because what you said earlier about this idea of you're, if you're living your story, if you're being in who you are, it's almost like molecularly your story is going to continue to like tingle and change from today to tomorrow to the next day. Right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, you hinted at, so I'm, I'm Asian American and I come from parents and generations of predominantly Chinese people with a smidge of Japanese in there. And I bring it up because two things about owning my story. It's been a long, long journey for me. And the reason being that I was taught culturally, you don't talk about yourself. So that's the number one thing. Community 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 first, first. family first, individual Maybe yes. fifth. Yes. And when yeah. you do talk about yourself, what I was trained to do was you always downplayed yourself. So I yes. would watch my parents who were both ping pong champions of their high schools. Okay. Look at that. I oh, know. Beautiful. It was really hilarious. And then people would compliment them on how good their ping pong is. And my mom's like, what are you kidding? I could barely hold this paddle. Right. So you're just like yeah. taught early on to say you suck. You suck. And don't talk about yourself too much. So with that in mind, what I would say is I grew up in a culture that I was, I was not going to put agency and voice in words 
to who I am or share my story openly. However, I grew up in a home that loved stories and Mm. loved books. So my parents were philosophy majors. They Uh. came to the U.S. in the 60s when the Chinese Exclusion Act was lifted, and they were part of that first influx of people who had come in to study. And as a little kid, born in Illinois, having moved five times because my father was taking on different teaching jobs across the states, one of my first impressions of my house was we didn't have a lot But what we did have was a ton of books and I was taught to learn how to read early on. Yeah. And I was surrounded by a lot of books that said on death and dying, you know, like Mm. deep, big question books. Yeah. The existential questions that never get answered. All the existential questions. I'm like seeing this (laughs) stuff at four years old. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And my parents would have dinner parties and people would get into these deep conversations I didn't understand. And at the time, this was in the 70s, I was living, we had moved and settled in Philadelphia. And we were the only Chinese family in a predominantly white, Irish, and Italian community in Mm. Philadelphia. Okay. 1776 in Philadelphia was a year-long party of the bicentennial. Mm. And I went yeah. to like Colonial Middle School and I lived on Penn Road named after William Penn. So we talk about Hamilton. I find this really fast because I noticed off of Pilgrim Road, okay? Yeah. Like half the buildings, the bank and what it, the bank, you know, the other school was Lafayette Consolidated. Oh my school. god. Okay, I mean, I in the heartbeat whoa, whoa the heartbeat of the founding fathers. Everything is named after the founding fathers. And now we're putting on these fancy skits. And then there's, you know, there's the the whole town is in Hoopla. I lived in Plymouth Meeting, which was the suburb. So named after the Quakers. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm this Asian kid. I'm an Asian kid with cobblestone streets and everything named after some famous founding father. And I remember thinking to myself how excited I was when July 4th was coming and I loved singing and dancing, shy kid. And I didn't get picked for any of the characters because I don't look the part. Mm. Right? This when you tied into Hamilton. That's where the brilliance of Hamilton is. This is where the brilliant, exactly, the owning the agency thing. So I know we're going to jump forward a, a bunch of decades and say why Hamilton means so much to me Mm. and why Lin-Manuel Miranda means so much to me to show not just agency, but to show that your understanding of who you are and your connection to other people, like his connection to Hamilton and to be like, why not a Puerto Rican boy? (laughs) Like, why can't I refigure and tell the story of Hamilton? And why can't I be the lead character of this story? Mm-hmm. You know, it was a really full circle moment for me because when I was a kid in the privacy of my own bedroom, I was a major performer and loved to sing and loved to dance. And there mm-hmm. was a cartoon. Did you ever see this cartoon of with the dancing frog that was like in the alleyway? It was like a Looney Tunes thing, but basically, the WB, top yeah, hat. They, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, he has the top hat when he's yes. by himself. He's like, Hello, yes. my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, exactly. my yes. Right? He's, yes. he's just like whole 
full on routine. And then this, this guy walks by and catches him entertaining himself, like basically kidnaps him, sticks him in a shoebox, takes him to producer studio, dumps mm. the frog out onto the producer's desk and is like, ta-da. And then the frog just sits there and goes, ribbit, <laughs> ribbit, <laughs> right? Yeah, the producer kicks them out. And then, you know, they, the man dumps the frog back into the alley walks away and then the frog starts doing the whole top hat routine all over again and then this happens again yeah and then once again in front of the producer when asked to perform turns back into a frog mm. i feel like that's who i was as a kid yeah so i had all of this imagination and all of these books and big questions around me as a really little kid who doesn't who realized at the age of 5 that i wasn't like anybody else that I was different and yeah. started to have this life inside my room and not, and not only inside my room, but inside my closet, my closet had a bench and it was kind of the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, like my place. Ah, look at that. I sat, I read all these books in there. I came up with all these story ideas. I mm. had lots of dreams that were made in that place where no one, no one could touch any of it, you know, yeah. and that back wall, you know, metaphorically opens me up into a new world, the way the lion, the witch and wardrobe did. Like I could mm. just be this expansive person over here. Right. And that's where I went. And then I would just go back and forth between going to my elementary school and realizing that people saw me as different and then coming home and being whatever the F I wanted to be. Yeah. You know? And so that, that was, and this back and forthness that I felt that I felt most of my life has been feeling like I have one foot in one place. One part of my being is in this world here. One part of my being is in this world here. And this is literally everywhere. So it would be, yes, like I was in this colonial kind of environment, you know? Yeah. And then in high school, my parents moved us to another Philadelphia suburb about 30 minutes away because there were more Chinese people. Yeah. But I didn't fit in there either. <laughs> and, mm. and there, I think there really was this different, you know, my parents were like very artsy and a lot of the families there were really pushing their kids into math team and science fair. And my mother would get phone calls from local neighbors going, um, did you know Stephanie signed up for the play? I don't think you should let her do that. Mm, right. Like they would actually yeah. critique my mom's parenting. Yeah. And what mm. I'd want to major in and all of this stuff. And so that was, it was a bit frustrating because I knew the kids and I knew that they were not some big homogeneous group, but they were being forced in out of love from their parents who also came over at the same time and want their kids to have stable jobs. But everybody's kind of being shoved through a Play-Doh machine of this is the formula for how you're going to get into a great school. This is a yeah. formula for how you're going to get a great job. Yeah. And then you Conformity never for the sake of stability, right? Conformity Isn't that, for the sake, yeah. Right? It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
So how did your mom react to those combos when she had parents calling her? Like, what, what, what was your mom's take? Oh, it was on the regular. She didn't care. <laughs> I thought that was mm. like, yeah. I was so thankful that she didn't care. She used to say to me, I don't know if she ever said it to any of the aunties in the neighborhood, but she said the most successful students are the ones that are B, B plus students. Ask they're me. smart enough to get straight A's, but they're well-rounded. They're doing things with their life. They're actually having life experiences. Where did your mom learn that? Where did your parents learn? It sounds like because... <laughs> When I think of folks like to often, and look, in our diaspora, our Asian diaspora, there's range, there's depth, right? And so, you know, when I think about my Filipino-ness, right? You know, there's Mm -hmm. the stereotypes of like the usual conformity for the sake of stability, which was generally for a lot of Filipinos getting into healthcare. Doctor Mm -hmm. was the one that was really prestigious, right? Yes. And that was the measuring stick. Is my child going to med school, becoming a doctor, right? Because there's so many, like, this is where the dive into history starts to matter about why these cultural norms and values existed within our parents for generations. And so if I tie back to the Philippines, right? The nursing schools that were created in the Philippines during American occupation, the story that gets told is that Filipinos are just generous, argue that to be true, I think, want to be giving and love being in hospitality. Yet, nursing shortage in America in the 1900s sounds familiar, the age of COVID, right? Right. Let's build these nursing schools in the Philippines as a way to get labor to come in to help with the shortage, right? And so most major hospitals, certainly in many, a, a big city has one Philippine doctor or nurse, if not several. Right. And so it just became yes. like my own tying of these cultural norms within Philippine American culture is that was a way to come to America. That was a path aside from folks coming yes. in through the Navy. Right. So if you, we, you understand these histories, it often then comes into the day to day of the stories we got told as kids. But we often aren't told those stories and those histories unless you seek them or they find you. Yeah. Right. And I think. First of all, there's so so many directions I want to go. Yes. What you just said. Uh-oh. Eight hour podcast eight episode. Eight hour podcast and stuff like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so which one am I going to pick first? So much juiciness in what you just said around there's the conformity for the sake of stability came from what were the roads that even allowed you to come into this country yes is what i heard from you right mm-hmm. and also what was true of a lot of the chinese american families that we grew up in with it was engineering yep <laughs> in the 60s and 70s it was engineering yeah so everyone around us was an engineer i don't know how my parents came in on philosophy and library science but hey awesome right and then that it, it almost self inscribes another story if we get into the whole model minority myth and what other people were telling me about me. Yes. Right? Yes. Oh, you must be good at math and science. Um, That would be a hard pass for me. Okay. (laughs) I tried math team to fit in for all of three months and they didn't really want me there, which was fine. I really didn't enjoy being there. Uh, And, you know, I tried being an accountant and, you know, I've done corporate finance and it, it, 
I could be proficient at it, but it was never going to be a superpower. It was always going to be something that would require three times the brain calories to like do something someone else would do. But I think that this thing of what's your story, like part of it that's so challenging is that you're trying to live your story, uh, you know, in the context of what you're being shown you're allowed to do in your experience. And then in the 40,000 narratives that people are inscribing on top of you and telling you who you are and then trying to find who you are in the middle of all of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So to me, like the history piece, like you talked about, has been really huge. So what I knew, what, what I was told as a kid that was my story for a long time and still is to a degree is, you know, so my parents were like, okay, um, we're Chinese, but my mom and dad considered themselves a mixed marriage, which I was really confused about because they all spoke Chinese. And then, you know, I heard that there was this Japanese side of us. That was a history that I was never told about. And my parents, they had a really tumultuous marriage. Mm. And they were both intellectuals. My mom was the first feminist I ever met. And she was uh, a library. She had started out as a philosophy major at Berkeley in the 60s as a grad student. I mean, ways to say that you are down with social justice without saying you're down it with social already, justice. Yeah, it was already, yeah. It was already coded, coded, <laughs> coded. Okay. Right. And my, right. And my parents, and it, it's taken me a while to realize that when I say my parents were communists, that most people in America will have a completely different view of what I'm talking about. So I have to share this. In yeah. the 70s, my parents were ideologically passionate about communism without really knowing how communism was truly playing out in China. Okay. So what that looked like was on the weekends in Philly, there were these huge conventions and all of these Chinese families would come in and, and they would sing songs and they, and there would be all these movies we'd watch and the kids would run around and play hide and seek in this spooky building while the parents were off doing whatever organizing they were doing. And then I'd watch these movies that were just sweeping. And the one piece I got out of what my parents told me about why why we did this every week was because they wanted, they believed that every human being had equal value. Mm. So whether you're a doctor or whether you're a farmer, this is, this is the way I absorbed it as, you know, a 10 year old was like, well, they're each providing this amazing service. Why should the doctor be seen as more important or be paid so much more money than the farmer who is making food for us. Like, why should that person be poor, right? So that's my very simplistic mind. Now, I don't really know what my parents were, you know, the depths of all of the ideas that they were having and the dinner parties they were throwing where people would come over and people would be up until one in the morning having these uh, chats at my house and other people's houses. And I do understand that they were trying to in a really idealistic kumbaya kind of way, reunite like China and Taiwan. And my dad was from Taiwan and my mom was from China. And somewhere in the eighties when I was in high school was when politically um, a lot of sort of militant conflict was happening. And that same conflict started happening in my home and I didn't understand it. And my mom just kept saying, 
your dad and I have different cultural differences. He was, he grew up under Japanese occupation. So she used to always say uh, he's yeah. got this Japanese culture thing that I don't understand. So when you talk about the diaspora, it's like, okay, I go to school during the day and everybody thinks all of us are exactly the same. Yes. And then I come home and I find out my parents can't get along because they don't meet eye to eye in terms of what Chinese culture is or isn't. And the thing is, like, in looking back, one of the things that I've learned about what is my story is that coded for social justice, coded for a passion that everybody holds equal value. I'm not saying economics, we need to do one thing or another, but we all have this amazing brilliance in us. And then also coded to be a bridge. Because even though I felt like I struggled sometimes having one, like one foot here and one foot there. And, and actually that continued on later, which we can talk about. Um, because yeah. I find myself, I, I started seeking communities of difference yes. where my two feet are always in two very fascinating, unlikely places together. That, that's what I do mm. is because then I started to just love hearing other people's stories. And one of my favorite kind of brain teasery things is when I meet somebody who either appears different from me or something on paper is really different from me, but we find that click and we find that common ground Yeah, from these totally disparate experiences. It's like a high for me. And so to me, it's like what we when we start exchanging those stories, whether I'm reading stories of people from all these different places or whether I am living in a place that's different or whether I'm getting, you know, even in college, I went to school in the Midwest, which was, you know, so different. Yeah. And then I ended up getting an African-American studies degree there and was a research assistant to my favorite professor. And, and now we're building these bridges. Wow. There's just so much richness that we miss out on and so much connection we miss out on. And so I realized for me that whereas I think I always wanted to feel like I clicked into some community somewhere, I now really enjoy being on the bridge and bringing other people over into the bridge area. And then like, let's click and throw a party there. So what's the bridge you're on now, Stephanie? Mm, so the bridge I'm on now, it's my lifelong work, which is the big theme I chase all the time is I, I want to help to create a world where we truly delight in each other's difference. And the first default is curiosity instead of fear. And the idea is you go into any room and instead of looking for a place to cling to where you're like, oh, I belong here, right? Which is our like tribal primal thing. It's like, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to meet these people that I don't know that are so different from me. And like that it could be fun. You know, I really would love that we just have fun with each other and wonder about that. And so the way the bridge I'm on to, to, to live that way and to work that way has been um, really helping people to unlock the multidimensional truth of their story so that 
they make conscious for themselves, who am I? And what do I have to give that's natural that I don't need to pretend or fit in a box in? And then you can have curiosity for other people. Once you've built that story of yourself, you can start engaging in others, right? And, and not worry that you're going to disappear or somebody else somebody else's story is somehow going to devalue yours, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the other one is, and I do this off and on, is that I want to sh- I want to be able to create spaces where people can experience these amazing stories of what happens when you really take the wall down and you do really connect in a meaningful way with someone who maybe on the surface might be someone you're afraid to connect with. And I that's something I call Zimza. Well, I started a magazine, an online magazine before COVID mm. called Zimzum, where I was gathering stories because I've been gathering these stories my whole life Yeah, of unlikely friendships and what happens, right? Mm. And I realized that's part of my own being to be able to be okay in, inside myself is to be able to challenge myself to do this as a practice and as a lifestyle. And one of the things I weave into, and I think you and I might have talked about it, is using the power of storytelling to claim the truth of who you are and then be able to share your truth and your message in ways that the people who are supposed to be inspired by you can hear it, to give you the confidence to do it. Because when you have clarity around your story, you have courage, even if you might be a shy person, which I was as a little kid, you know, the frog in the box or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then human design, which is this tool that's helping to also uncover and create this overlay of what you came into the world with and all of these powers that you had that you didn't know you were given. And you get to reclaim those along with reclaiming your story to be the full embodied version of you out in the world. Steph, it almost sounds like you're living what Stan Lee wrote in his X-Men comic, right? You are- What did he write in his X-Men comic? Tell me. So I remember watching X-Men as a kid, not a huge comic Marvel fan of like reading comics because I just never gravitated to comics like that. But I've watched way too much TV and and, and, and movies for my own good. Like I'm a- pop culture consumer through that. And of course, music, which we'll get to in a second, because we're going to talk karaoke songs in a little bit. We so need to, We just have to. Is my quick headline of the brilliance of the X-Men comic is that you have all these folks who come into Charles Xavier's school. They're mutants. They have all these superpowers that are shunned upon by human society. Shunned. That's it. That's it. But yet, Charles Xavier has this school and I forget the name of the school. Forgive me, Marvel fans. I'm not I'm not down like y'all. My, my bad, my bad. And getting them to take comfort and seeing the true power in average superpowers, like Wolverine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And their origin story, the brilliance of like any of the Marvel comics, right, that have become movies especially, is to hear the backstory of why is Wolverine Wolverine? Why are these characters, why is Iron Man Iron Mind? Why the Marvels the Marvels? Like that kind of stuff, because we are in fact all of the superheroes to our own story. Yes, we are. 
period. Once again, shout out Ali Myatt for like connecting you and I. When you and I talked, it was like, wait a second, we are such kindred spirits to hear that you and I are also very similar around seeking people across all the different lines of identity that we don't necessarily share and seeing that there's a common thread of humanity and values that society tells us that we don't have in common. But in fact, real talk, neuroscience nerd and math nerd and everything I've ever learned in all those years of learning science is how much biologically in our DNA we have in common as humans, right? So it it always seemed to me like misaligned how our society has been constructed around these constructs like race and gender, for example. Those are social constructs. They don't technically exist. And yet at the same time, these things do exist because they have an impact. Whatever environment you create, whether we opted into it or not, have an effect on us, right? And yet the telling of our story I mean, the superhero, the center of that story and identifying the strengths and the powers that we have is a way to cut through all that noise and elevate and say, I do have something that's unique. I may be a product of my environment, yet at the same time, there's something that is inherently different, unique, and special about who I am. That's right. And what what you just said also gave me this visual in a way of crystallizing why I'm so passionate about doing this now. So, you know, my job title, so to speak, is, right, I'm a brand a strategist. I'm yes. a storytelling coach for rising thought leaders. And I'm a human design coach who's also overlaying those pieces in. But mm. if you go, well, why was I interested in that if I was frankly, really shy, terrified of selling and not into (laughs) marketing at all. What I really realized is underneath, it was a pursuit of reclaiming power because the system we live in is power with a capital P. The story we're told about who we are and what we're worth and how it's tied is with a capital S. Hmm. And we are not taught in school anywhere we're taught that we're unique like we have those fantasies like we have the myths right we have all these myths that you are a superhero but there's actually no access point to but how do i know what's special about me and how do i know because like when these gifts that i feel like are gifts are shunned yes by society or i'm being told hey if you step out a little bit too much this way if you're weird enough Like, it's not going to go well for you. And I actually want to flip that upside down and say, actually, the stuff that makes you, can we reframe the power of difference that lives within you? And what would it look like if you actually could tell the story to yourself first about why these gifts, these so-called shunned gifts, or why these gifts that maybe are ignored or not seem to be important? actually is your secret sauce and the stuff you most enjoy giving in the first place. Yeah. But if you actually could articulate to yourself and other people why it's so freaking awesome and valuable, now your life's going to change. And so that to me is what connecting to this brand story thing is all about is just tossing aside the traditional practices of brand that's so outside, that's so customer focused 
But it's like, no, let's kind of pull it in from the inside. People are always saying, differentiate yourself. And all my clients are like, I know I'm different. I don't know how to understand how this difference is valuable. I don't know how to talk about it. And half the people I'm afraid are going to tell me like, why are you here? You know, like, Mm. so this whole thing to me is about empowerment and being able to, you have, you, I think you do need help for people to mirror back to you how these surprising, underestimated, shunned, devalued on the fringes, whatever is the thing that's holding a person back from thinking like this stuff that is a part of me is actually important and uniquely valuable. But without words, you won't have power around those things. And that's why like the narrative, the the bet is your bedrock, like the narrative you're being has to be spoken out loud (laughs) and has to be in words for you Mm-hmm. for it to really be something you can own and stand on and give. And yeah. that's what I want to do for others because it took me a long time yeah, to bring that all together and do that for myself. And I just want everyone to have that possibility to re reshift mm-hmm. and kind of claim your power. You're all those little powers that are in there. They're all in the nooks and crannies of our life experience. Yeah. And They'd be amazing together. If you weave it through with a story that's unique. Yes. How you want to share yourself rather than worrying about what does your customer want? And let's shape my story to what the customer wants. There's something about what you're saying that the people that I rock with, which are a lot of the people you rock with, I imagine, not just Ali Mai, but many others, right? Yep. Is this idea that if you don't get deep within self, and understanding who you are, the whims of what's around you can very much throw you to the wind. You can be that, you know, that yep. balloon figure that's at all the different like car dealerships that does that in the wind. You want to be yeah. flexible enough like a skyscraper to go with the wind, but not so much that you're bending over and creating disturbance. Yes. Right? It's like, what's that middle ground look like? Right? Oh, I love that because it's like not only creating disturbance or potentially causing harm or potentially yeah. creating things outside, but even cracking yourself. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot. I, I think a lot in metaphors and, vis- and visuals and <laughs> <Same here>. right. <laughs> okay, cool. There was a book called the secret life of trees that became, um, if you want to call it a documentary. Okay. But I'm really fascinated by this idea that with trees and the sequoia tree in particular. Mm. In a I had a meditation I w- in a meditation I got this download that said, you know, my, the god of my understanding said, I want you to be like a sequoia tree. And so I looked it up. And sequoia trees are one of the few trees that are resistant to fire. The other thing is they have roots that go for days below the surface. Yeah. And then they and other trees support each other underneath. So what you said about that lone reed thing, I really was like, okay, so as a human, and if if I want to be a sequoia tree and I'm helping others in my own way to be sequoia trees, right? Like you said, the the people we hang with, like if we could turn the tide on culture, 
and all of us had deep roots means you spend a lot of time growing down before anybody sees anything above the surface. And to me, it's like the story, you're, you're st- not just one story, but like the stories that make you up, that make you understand who you are and where you came from, and then how they connect to other people as part of those new, and then having a, a, a tribe of people who remind you who you are on one of those days when inevitably you're going to be like, something will be going on, like scrolling through a newsfeed or, yeah. right, we're back, we're back in the matrix and people telling you who you think you are. I have to say, it's so funny because like every year I still have people who not only ask where are you really from, which a lot of Asians get. Yeah. But I, it, what really cracks me up is when I have somebody saying, well, you're not Chinese or they're trying to tell me who I am. Yeah. And that happens not just on the, on the ethnic level, but in a lot of ways, like trying to tell you stuff. And com- there's 40,000 commercials, apparently, at least, that we're inundated to about us not being enough. Yeah. So having that, having that, um, willingness because we are so customer focused in our goals and success is measured by so many external things. But the the trick, I think the challenge that I'm noticing in myself and where I've struggled in my own business and with people that I work with is that if you're building things externally focused, it all it takes is one blow for the whole thing to come down, right? Like it's not sustainable, but it is sustainable if you were rooted clearly in yourself, right? You can have a couple branches knocked off or whatever, but you can build sustainable impact without burning out, without living in self-doubt, without... Mm people if people are critiquing and judging you it's gonna hurt i mean we're human it's gonna hurt but it won't necessarily take us down if we build so this is the part i'm really passionate about is like what are the tools and ways to kind of build those sequoia roots yeah Hmm. that furnish a tree so that in the times we live in that just are getting more and more tumultuous how are you fireproof and how can you connect that. holding your roots, holding hands underneath the surface for the others, you know? Yeah. I love that you shared, you know, something I'm really curious about, right? Because when I heard you like talk about how much the sequoia is a part of like your, like a spiritual metaphor for who you are. So I'm going to bring my friend Julie Chan into this, who I need to have as a podcast guest, because I was a podcast guest on her being my purpose podcast. So Julie Chan is one of my spiritual coaches. And so I've been seeing Julie for the last five years. One of the very first images she had of me in her intuition and in her spiritual practice was me as an elephant. Elephant with a party hat. Shouldn't surprise you. Had a party hat holding a crayon at the moment of creation. Oh my gosh. So there was so much unpacked there. You know what I'm saying? So much in there. And the thing about like the sequoia tree having its roots being around other sequoia trees and holding hands. One of the other things she intuited around about me was me holding hands with other elephants 
us elephants going up multiple staircases and then convening at certain floor landings and all holding hands together in a circle. Like, Serena, when you said that, I was like, oh my God. Like, it's pretty incredible to see how much in our spiritual, intuitive world, when you take that, there's incredible meaning you can take into our five senses. When you talked about being a bridge, one of the things I realized about one of my callings, and I get this from both my mom and my dad, but probably more from my mom, because my mom has always had the ability to sense folks from beyond. So mm. I have that gift. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, 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 I used to deny it, <laughs> but See? I have it. Self-shunning. <laughs> yeah, self-shunning, because it was scary. I was like, isn't that weird? Like you're hearing ghosts? Like what is th- what's that about? When people die, aren't they just dead? It's like, no, yeah, that's not what happens. Right. And one of the things I've learned in our spiritual journey, in my spiritual journey, is that I'm this bridge between the five senses world and our multiple senses world, our sixth sense, our seventh sense. And so I'm really going to be able to translate for folks who might have not as good of a verbal ability to tell what they're experiencing from the spiritual world. And this goes into all my years of being in hiring and like being able to use a rubric to make decisions, right? Is that I've learned to be able to blend those worlds to take the gut and the objective evidence because my honest truth is that the magic around making decisions comes from what is unseen and unheard. And yet in our five senses world, you say that that is ripe with people being like, you must be smoking something. And yet it's very much what I've experienced and believe. And yet I I can't put into words. So I cannot describe what that gift is. And yet when people ask around, like who's really good at search and hiring and like building relationships, I'm the poster child. And it doesn't come from this, like I'm smarter than everyone else. It's just, I've tapped into this deeply spiritual sense that allows me to be able to translate those things for others. Yeah. Well, I bet you, you have stories that show that very magic, right? Like the words actually come from the stories themselves. And then from there, it could like come out of there. I love that. It's like, I'm hearing this bridge between, like you said, this spiritual and the scientific or the material and helping people to see that it's, it's more than that. Yeah. And I, I'm so down for that, you know, and that's, It's interesting too, because you and I met on LinkedIn. I know. And one of the things I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn the tables on you for a second. If that's Uh-oh, okay. I'm, I'm being interviewed. Oh no. <laughs> I also am a former podcaster and like a yeah. journalist and whatever. So, yeah. you know, my story range, you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've sort of bounced around all different story careers, if you will. But okay. I'm curious yeah. if in the world of LinkedIn, which we could say mm-hmm. is uh, among social media platforms, it's the business box. It is. Right? And yes. I, yeah. You know where I'm going with this now, I think. Yeah. Is the question is when you're thinking about those sixth and seventh sense worlds mm-hmm. and bridging that, I'm curious for you if it's been challenging or noticing uh I, I mean i'm just sort of curious for you how that looks in linkedin because i too am also challenging myself yeah so slowly to cut con- like you know there's still the the 
I don't know. So I'm really curious for you if sharing more about your gifts, have you ever shared those gifts out on LinkedIn? Yes. You have. And Facebook. Um, not as much as I probably could. I'm probably a lot more comfortable on Facebook versus LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Although my Facebook world is this blend of the professional and the personal. It's just my LinkedIn is the professional and steroids. I connect with so many people on LinkedIn. It's like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook is still personal enough for me where the sharing of family photos, my workouts, and because Facebook and Instagram be in the meta world, they connect, right? And so- yep. If LinkedIn was connect those worlds, I'd probably be sharing this stuff across all three platforms pretty easily, right? I would say is I've gotten more comfortable with self and my story. So here's a tangible example. When I've shared things around my intuition and my spiritual journey, I have found that more of us ex-people exist out there. Yes. Who've reached out to me and said, and sometimes they wouldn't comment. They would share a message. Hey, Ron, I should talk to you about this because I've had dreams over the years. Ron, my grandfather is someone in Mexico that had this gift. I'm learning. You know what I'm saying? I was just like, yes. holy crap. And then I remember there was something on Netflix talking, some documentary talking about that spiritual intuitive world. And I posted it and shared something about it. And someone I used to work with at a nonprofit was like, oh my God, I know you thought that way too. I'm like, yeah. And- What I found is in the bridge, once again, between the LinkedIn, Facebook box, the threads box, whatever box is that all I'm doing is manifesting my energy, my energy and your transcends the box. Yeah. So I think I less have to tell myself not to worry about what the box is constructed for and worry about my values and my energy Yeah. because in a parallel world that I tell folks about creating relationships is that you and I being here on video, us having talked, even though I've not yet met you, that when you truly understand the medium of how energy moves, in fact, our ancestors have known this for millennia, if not millions of years, I don't have to be in front of you to know you. That's right. And that wakes people out. So in the world of Zoom, I'm gonna get very tangible about this, but I told people in the world of Zoom, which we're living in today, right, is... I don't need to physically be in front of someone to build a relationship with them deeply. They go, what? What do you mean? I'm like, we have been taught because of the way our bodies are made. We live in a body that you can feel and experience things more easily, more readily when you're in front of someone. There are things like mirror neurons, et cetera. Like there's the strong biological evidence of those things. And I, I do believe in every ounce of my being that some of the strongest relationships I have have been ones that have started virtually. Me too. And for me, the understanding of building space without us being in front of each other is just an understanding of how to manifest energy. And I know that's going to sound foo-foo for folks. No, and, I, right? I, but I, I, I know for you, like that, but I'm saying like when I, yeah. I do a lot of zooming in and out, right. I, and I know in me saying that, it's like, but that don't make no sense, Rod. I'm like, it's not supposed to make sense in five senses because there's no... There's no way to really describe it. All I tell folks is like, trust me when you talk to me, I think you'll understand. There are people that have I've talked to, I'm sure you've talked to, sometimes in five or 10 minutes, start telling me things they don't tell other people. It's yeah. an uncanny thing where I'm just like, oh. And if they start especially talking about people in their lives that have passed, uh-oh, 
Because you know what happens to me then, Steph? I feel them. And they start telling me things. <laughs> like, uh-oh. Like, what do I say? And to be clear, I don't always share because, like, I don't I don't often know, like, people are going to get winked out or not by that. But if the moment yeah. happens, sometimes I just feel it. Sometimes I just go, I remember there's someone, he was actually, this person was a candidate for a search that I was doing, ended up being a finalist. And this person told me about their 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 a loved one passing. And after a while during the convo, maybe 20 minutes in, I felt the need because I could feel their loved one tell me something. It was like, they were getting emotional. I said, can I share something with you? This person said, yeah. I was like, and I shared what, what I was feeling. And this person was like, oh my God. They were like, what? I was like, how did you know? Or how did you sense that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I think I've started to embrace some, I'm, I'm, I'm a beginning learning medium in that respect. Yeah. Well, I, I am, the whole thing about manifesting energy is like where I'm at right now as well too. And where I think there's so many ways to study it. And the human design piece has been helping me see kind of the energetic blueprint that each person has. Mm. And then in owning and, and then showing people what, what you have there and yeah, having people have experiences clicking into gifts they couldn't explain before or were self-shunning or had been shunned. And I think what you said about the virtual friendship, the virtual relationships piece, it applies to me too. And yeah. I feel like it ha- it's because if people are owning their energy instead of working against their energy, yeah. then you could... That's very non-scientific way of putting it. Like, you know, we talk about authenticity. I've been really asking myself what authenticity is. And I feel like on the intellectual level, you have this alignment of values and all of the things that we talk about. And are you physically doing things that align to your values? But I actually think even energetically aligning to your values where you know your body is all in on something rather than fighting you to try and do something and being... And then now it's like people probably feel that and because judgment probably creates that energetic block. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, so that's the first it's like word the that minute came to that mind. happens. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting because when I was a kid too, well, not I'm not just a kid, but I remembered when I was a kid and I was, like I said, I was, I was shy, fascinated by people, but incredibly shy, like mm. hide in a closet. My mom's got to coax me out from behind all the winter coats to say hello to the dinner guests shy. Aww. Right? But then I overcame shyness when I was 13, and then I went in the opposite direction. But yeah. one of the things is that people also used to tell me their stories too. Mm. And things they had never told their families. I don't have the, I don't have a medium gift, but what I have is for some yeah. reason, people going, I don't know why I'm telling you this about myself. And then seeing something almost molecularly change on their face because they said it out loud to another human being. And Mm. I think that when I think about that and I think about my work now with is that if our energy is, I think about it as if, if, if our insides and our outsides are sort of going downstream in the same direction and it like flows, it can nourish a lot of things. But if you're, mind is up here doing this one thing and your heart is wanting to do a different thing 
mm. and your gut wants to do something else, then yeah. now it's like you're swimming upstream and wondering why you're so tired. Right. Right. Or something right. in you is fighting against something. Then that interaction with somebody else is only going to go so far. Yeah. It's just one of the five senses world. I, I'm going to have a future podcast guest as someone I've worked at a national nonprofit for a long time. And this person's a somatic coach. Mm, yeah. Right. The stuff is there are practices yeah. that I think pervade the five senses world around being able to tie what's in here with what's in your body. Right. And I would argue like spiritually understanding it, like I think that's the other part of our frontier that always needs to be examined again and again, because I think if I just think over the generations, right, that sometimes the push towards the material, the ephemeral, right, is where a lot of stuff goes wrong, right? But I think understanding what's enduring, understanding what is timeless is our spirit and our souls, right? And I think when we focus on those things, I think generally speaking, I found more good things happening than not. So yeah. Well, Steph, we're rounding out to that time. So I gotta, I'm going to ask you three last things. We're going to go with number one. What is your rondering? What's the lesson or value you want to share with the audience? Mm, the rondering you were describing is kind of like a superpower or something or something that I'm fascinated by. That's one way to interpret it, right? As long as it's the thing you want to share with the audience about the lesson or value you want to share today on the episode. It could be through superpower or something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, my Ron, my rondering is that whatever is the thing that you delight in, in yourself that you're afraid is too weird for the world. Mm. That is your brilliance. And if you double down Mm. on that, watch out and just see how much you manifest. That's beautiful. Thank you, Steph. Number two, if you had one karaoke song, that would be the entrance song for your life. What's that song? Oh my gosh, it has changed. It changes. There's like seasonal changes to it. Let's see. What was it? Was anything from Hamilton, but specifically it was the My Shot song. Ooh. Mm. You know? Yeah. That's one. And what would be another one? Juice by Lizzo. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Especially the line when she says, if I'm shining, everybody gonna shine. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yes. I'm like Chardonnay better all the time. <laughs> Shout out, Lizzo. Yeah. Mine would be living on a prayer on Jovi. Because not only is that my favorite karaoke song ever, because it is the crowd pleaser, the crowd starter. You don't have to be able to sing well to do living on a prayer. But it brings me back to like childhood. It brings you back to this like, it's just a, it's a joyous song. Even though when you start it's thinking about the lyrics, song. right? Yeah. It's a kind of hard knock song, right? You think about yeah. it just like, you know, what, you know, Johnny and Gene are going through. It's like, man. John Bon Jovi knows a lot of Johnnies and Ginas. They're all these <laughs> songs. But growing up in New Jersey and New York around a lot of Italians, I'm not surprised a lot of Johnnies right. and Ginas. Hello. So I'm just like, I'm just saying. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I love that. I mean, there are go-to karaoke songs that wouldn't be my, the, the, the go-to karaoke song is actually Sweet Transvestite from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but that wouldn't define my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but that's not really, yeah, that one actually probably doesn't age well anymore either. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know how many folks use that the, the term transvestite anymore. It's not a very exactly yeah kosher term to use. Nope. Yeah. So Steph, before we end off, I'm gonna leave you space with what you would like to promote in your life and or your work. Yes. Yeah, so um for friends out there who are super curious and ready to just tap into the things we just talked about, like where is my brilliance? Those places that were just magical to me that I'm meant to bring out. Um, I invite you to check out a video series that I just created that's free called Double Down on Your Difference. Mm. And it will show you three different places that you can get started to start to tap into your unique and innate um, differences to really bring out and own when you are stepping out into the world. Mm. Well, Steph, thank you for sharing that. Be sure that when this podcast drops, we will have that in the episode notes um, so that people can find that and find you and your brilliance. Steph, we could probably talk another eight hours because we didn't even get to all the karaoke songs we love to sing. We didn't get to sing. There should be a karaoke I mean, episode, I think. And I know. Bring Allie in for that as well, too. Oh. She's a karaoke junkie, too. No, I know. When we went to Edlock in Vegas, we were trying to find a spot to do karaoke. Didn't happen, unfortunately, but I think uh, for the fall retreat or next time we we meet up, uh, she and I are going to have to do karaoke because I'm like, Allie can sing, sing. See, there's the, like, I like to have folks like, I'm like, you can sing, sing, sing. Yeah. I'm in the, I can sing well enough to not totally embarrass myself. Yeah. And the more drinks I have and the more that I sing songs that require me shouting, the more that my voice starts to go downhill. <laughs> and so it's just like. I'm between the two of you. So, you know, perfect. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm the one that I help people overcome their karaoke fear. Mm. So when I was at Teach for America, yeah. the entire online marketing team, we went out to karaoke in Boston and most of them had never done it before. But then as long as they just needed somebody to go up and sing with them and then they were good to go. You were the uh, the wing person to make sure that they can get yes. up there and like do. And once they got comfortable, then it's just like, why? Yeah, exactly. Why that's the, you know what, as we're saying that I realize that's the thing I love is just helping people to own their voice and just be like, here I am. Here's the note I'm contributing to this symphony. That's mine, you know? So yes, yeah. let's do that singing. Oh my gosh. And the Hamilton and then the, uh, the lame, we're going to have to do the lame is, uh, the Javert. Yes. The confrontation. Can we do yes. that too? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Steph, it was a gift having you on for today's podcast. Rondering's fam, using the words of Coach Prime, we keep coming. More incredible guests like Steph and many, many others coming up soon in your inbox. Peace out, y'all. What a gift, Steph Zhang. I'm caught by what you said at the end of this episode, that when you delight in what you want to be doing, to paraphrase, watch out world, watch out what you manifest. And I really enjoyed how much we talked about this manifestation of energy and intuition that I knew from the very first combo that we had before we recorded this podcast, that we were on a very similar spiritual wavelength. And so as I like to tell folks, those of us intuitives often find each other. So 
Steph, I'm glad that you're a part of my life and I look forward to collaborating with you on more things. So Ronderings fam, we keep coming. More great guests like Steph coming on the mic with yours truly. Peace.